Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. If you start at the beginning of the New Testament and go through the four Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, and then they begin the letters of Paul, Romans, then 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians, we are just past the halfway point in chapter 8. And our text this morning is chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. But in order to give us the context that I believe Paul would have us to have, I'm going to begin our reading back in what we read last week, chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. And we will take that down through the end of our text at verse 9. If you would please give attention to the holy and inerrant and sufficient and authoritative word of God. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overwhelmed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, our God, Lord, we come to you this morning, for you alone have the words of life. There is none like you, Lord. You are truth itself. And so we ask that you would open up your word to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. That even as we read it, study it, and mark it, that we would be encouraged, that we would be convicted, that we would know you more and know more your will for us. This we ask in the great and mighty name of our Savior, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. We have here in these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, a theology of giving. We began looking at that last week. And you may recall that the context for this theology of giving was the taking up of a relief collection for the churches in Judea 
and Jerusalem. You may remember that Paul began this section not with a law, not with a command, but rather with an example. The example of the Macedonians. He showed how the grace of God had so affected the Macedonians that they had given even beyond their means. Despite their poverty, despite their affliction, their joy in the Lord and the grace of God had led them to an abounding generosity. Now Paul turns from the example to a series of directives. He will instruct the Corinthians on what they should do, and he will build this on the foundation of the example of gracious generosity. From this point on, through the rest of chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul is going to give a series of instructions or directives about giving. It's important to remember, however, that the main theme of these chapters is grace. Ten times in chapters 8 and 9, Paul uses the word grace to remind us that these directives are founded upon the grace of God. And so even as Paul gives us prescriptions to be applied and carried out, it is in the context of grace. And that is what we will see today. We will see three of the directives that Paul has in our text this morning. And I'd like us to take them up under three headings. First, the grace of giving. Second, the love of giving. And then third, the supreme example of giving. Grace, love, and the supreme example. Let's begin then by looking at the grace of giving that Paul sets forth here in our text. Now, Paul is directly beginning to address the Corinthians. You will notice this in the change of pronouns. In the beginning of this chapter, the pronouns were they and them. And now as Paul turns to the Corinthians, the pronouns become you and your. He is addressing the church at Corinth. He is giving them principles about giving. And he is encouraging the Corinthians to apply them. And, and that is why this is so helpful for us, for you and me. Because this is not just a description of a specific instance of giving. No, rather, it is a theology of giving that applies for us in our day as well. Verse 6 in this passage is a transition. Paul's call to them to take back up the collection, this act of grace. And that, I think, is, is very important for us to see. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. This collection that was begun perhaps a year before Paul wrote this is now to be reestablished. But it is an act of grace. He begins by reminding them... That giving is a grace. And he does this by bringing to their minds God's grace to them. Look with me at verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel 
in this act of grace also. In verse 7, he tells them that they excel in everything. Now, this is interesting because it brings to mind verse 2. Because the word for excel is the exact same word that Paul uses in verse 2 about the overflow of the generosity of the Macedonians. He's drawing a direct line between what the Corinthians took pride in and the generosity of the Macedonians. They are excelling. They are overflowing. They are abounding. And then he specifies what the everything is. It is spiritual graces that they have received from the Lord. He lays out five of them. Faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, and love. And in each instance, these are things that the Corinthians have received from the Lord. They are the beneficiaries of God's grace. And it has an impact on their lives, how they live, and how they treat others. So first he speaks of their excelling in faith. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, of course, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, is the gift of God. Your faith is not your own. It is a gift from God. It is something that God the Holy Spirit works in you. That as you look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe that he is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and your Savior. They receive this from God. And even if we think about faith in terms of what we see in the latter part of 1 Corinthians, that is the faith to work wonders or miracles, that is still a gift of God. God has given them that faith. Paul then says that they have excelled in speech. Some translations say utterance. This is the Greek word for word, logos. And what this means is that they excelled probably in the ability to communicate prophetically. Not in the sense primarily of telling the future, but of telling the truth. That they excelled at knowing the gospel and telling the gospel to others. And this was, of course, the grace of God. Because there was a time when they didn't even know who God was. Let alone could they tell others what he had done for them. They excelled in knowledge. God had given them prophetic revelations. We see again in 1 Corinthians, the word of knowledge. They reveled in these things. And yet all of them came from God. They had an earnestness that Paul mentions in chapter 7, verse 11. This earnestness for Paul, for each other, for the church. God had brought this about through repentance and grace. And then finally, they had Paul's love. They were the recipients of the love of the apostle who had brought the gospel to them and changed them forever. So now Paul has made the connection with the Corinthians. When they had heard Paul telling them about what they had excelled in, they would have recognized how they had been blessed. In a similar way, if I had told you, congregation of Christ Church, you excel. You excel in vacation Bible school. You excel in ministering to others in English as a second language. You excel in 
teaching Sunday school. You excel in mission works. You excel in helping others. You would say, we've been blessed. God has given to us. He's made all of that possible. And so what Paul has done is put the Corinthians and you and me in a position where we see this is all of grace. This is crucial as we think about generosity and giving. They would have known that all that had happened to them was the work of God, His grace. And so Paul gently pushes them on in the same way. It's almost as if Paul were to ask them, do you think that you have exhausted the grace of God? Do you think that that's nothing else that you could receive from God by grace? Do you think that generosity is somehow different from faith or from love or from knowledge? Do you think that somehow the Macedonians are just better people? Is there an overflowing of generosity just in them and not in you? No, that's not the case. And so Paul says, you need to ask for grace also. You excel in these graces. See that you excel in this act of grace as well, the act of generosity. Now, there is a principle for you and me to apply. This first principle is that we are to desire to abound in the God-given grace of a generous spirit. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 7. We are to desire to abound in the God-given grace of a generous spirit. Paul's speaking in an imperative here. It's as if he's saying, you know grace, you love grace, seek more grace, find more. Now, this is so counter to the way that the world thinks. The world expects us to seek help when we are needy. But God tells us to seek to be givers regardless of our situation or our circumstances. When we find ourselves in need, God tells us to seek grace and to be generous. Why? Because it is not really about money or resources. It's about experiencing grace. Now, we often think about giving as different from the rest of the Christian life. We know that we need God's grace to love each other. We know that we need God's grace to know His Word. And we need His grace to share the gospel. But giving... Well, that's all about resources. Either you have them or you don't. But Paul tells you today that it is not about resources. It's about grace. Ask God for that grace. Beg Him for that grace. Seek Him in that grace. He can make you excel in the grace of giving and generosity. Then in verse 8, Paul describes a second principle. The first principle was that we should desire an overflowing measure of the grace of generosity. The second principle is that we should test the reality of our love by comparing it 
to the earnestness of others. We should test the reality of our love by comparing it to the earnestness of others. Look at the text with me. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now, this principle is related to the first principle in that both of them emphasize grace. Do you see how Paul begins verse 8? I say this not as a command. He comes right out and tells us that it's not a command. Now, you would think that would weaken his ability to influence them. It would weaken his efforts to stir up generosity in them. After all, if he were to command them to do something, they, and frankly we, would be obligated to obey. It's not that Paul doesn't have the authority to do this. After all, the only person who can say, I'm not speaking by way of a command, is someone who can speak at times by way of a command. Paul has apostolic authority. He uses the same word, command, to describe the authority that had been given to him by the command of God, our Savior. He speaks about this over and over again in Titus, in 1 Timothy, and in Romans. He even tells Titus that Titus has this authority. He tells Titus to declare these things, to exhort and rebuke with authority. Same word, command. Let no one disregard you. So Paul had all the authority he needed. Why doesn't he just say to the Corinthians and to you and me, you better give and you better give quick. Why doesn't he command? It's because love cannot be a product of compulsion. We know that, don't we? You can't make someone love. If you try to, it's not love anymore. Love, by definition, is self-sacrifice, giving for another. If I am compelled to love, it's no longer love. It becomes something else entirely. And so Paul wants the Corinthians, and hear me, he wants you to experience the reality of love through giving. He won't deny the Corinthians that blessing. He will not force them to give. Now, again, that is because this is not about material needs primarily. Of course, there is a need. There is a need for the saints in Jerusalem and Judea. But God has brought about this need for a purpose. To give his people an opportunity to test their love. Have you ever thought about your trials in this way? That God sends us trials in order to serve our brothers and sisters? To give them an opportunity to test their love? Without needs, there would be no giving. Without giving, there would be a lack of a way to test our love. Often we, in a situation in which we have a need or a trial, we become inwardly focused and we think about ourselves and we ask ourselves, why would God do this to me? Or maybe perhaps a bit more sanctified, we would say, what is God trying to say to me in this trial? 
And not all the time, but I think sometimes the answer is nothing. God's not trying to say something to you. He's trying to say something to your spouse or your children or your neighbors or your fellow church members. He's trying to give them an opportunity to exercise love by meeting a need. To develop the grace of generosity. And so Paul pushes us back to the Macedonians in verses 1 through 5. He sets a high bar for this test of genuine love. This proof. The Macedonians are the benchmark. Do you see it? Prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. It's not just the giving that's important here. It is the sacrificial, joyous, begging not to be excluded giving that we saw last week. And by joining in this generosity, the Corinthians would show that they met the standard. Now, Paul is not starting a competition here. He's not saying to the Corinthians, I wonder if you could possibly give more than the Macedonians. You know, we have a way of doing that. Each year when we have vacation Bible school, we have a mission emphasis, whether it's a foreign missionary or someone, a mission close to home. And we will encourage the children who come to, to bring their nickels and dimes and quarters and to come and give for that mission work. And the way that we goad them on is we say, all right, Who's going to give more, the boys or the girls? And if on Monday the girls bring more than the boys, we say to the boys, you better pick it up, guys. You want the girls to beat you again on Tuesday? You've got to give more than them. Make sure you bring all you can to win. Now, that may be a humorous interlude for children. That's not what Paul is doing here. He's not trying to set up a competition. He is challenging the Corinthians. Because you have to remember who the Corinthians are. The Corinthians thought very highly of themselves. This is very clear in both of Paul's letters to them. The Corinthians took a back seat to no one. They had the greatest faith. They worked the greatest miracles. They had the most words of knowledge. They had the greatest emphasis on ministry. And so Paul had actually just told them that they had excelled in those gifts. And you can almost hear them being encouraged and saying, you know what? That's right. We've got these graces. We excel in these graces. And now Paul says, and now is the time to excel in another grace. The grace of giving. There's no reason you can't, Paul says. You can participate and excel in this grace as much as the Macedonians do. And again, we see here that this is about grace. There is no mention of how much they give. Paul is not saying you need to tally up your offering and make sure it reaches this certain amount. In fact, he actually does the opposite. The standard for giving is the heartfelt giving of those who are extremely poor. You remember when we looked at that last week? That this is not upper class, this is not middle class, this is not even low class. This is low, low, down class. Extreme, deep poverty, Paul says. He's comparing those who don't have much to give as the standard. We can go all the way back to the story again of the widow 
in Mark 12 and her offering. She put in all she had, but it wasn't much. Some translations call it two pennies. Now let me ask you a question. Are you like me? Have you ever had occasion where you threw pennies away? Because you went and bought something and you got two or three pennies and change and they're jingling around in your pocket and you don't want them there. Or you're a man and you don't have a purse to put everything in the world in and you don't know what to do with it. You don't want to hold three pennies in your hand and you don't want to put it on your dresser because it'll scratch your dresser. And it's just three pennies. What do you do? You throw it away. What can you buy with three pennies? The answer pretty much today is nothing. That's what the widow gave. That's what Jesus singled out. She gave what we throw away. And it was considered a standard of excellence. Are you ready to test the genuineness of your love? To know that you are sincere in your love for other believers and for the Lord. God tells you that a way to do that is to excel in generosity. To have a heart that longs to give. To sacrifice. To follow the Lord in all His ways. This is a way in which you can follow the Lord even at the youngest of ages. No one is asking you young people here to give to the amount that would buy a car or a nice vacation. But if you're generous from your heart, maybe it's sharing a toy with someone who doesn't have one. Maybe it's being generous with your time to help others in school. Maybe it's giving someone the money that you had saved up to buy some sweets so that they can have something that they need. This can begin at the earliest of ages, cultivating this grace and love of giving. Paul then moves in verse 9 to a third principle that we are to understand and to imitate. Recall that the first principle is we are to desire an overflowing measure of the grace of generosity. The second principle is we ought to test the reality of our love by comparing it to the sacrificial love shown in the earnestness of others. And now, we ought to measure our commitment to generosity by the ultimate example of sacrifice and giving in Jesus Christ. We ought to measure our commitment to generosity by the ultimate example of sacrificial giving in Jesus Christ. This is the capstone of Paul's argument. He has used the example of the Macedonians, but he has a better one now. Look at the text of verse 9. For you know. Now this for is not a therefore, but it is indeed a connectional word. He is telling the Corinthians, and you, and me, and quite frankly, the Macedonians as well, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we start to talk about generosity and grace, we all know the best example. It's Jesus. I don't need to know what the church in Paris, France, or the church in Beijing, or the church in San, uh, uh, San Paulo is doing. I have the example of Jesus Christ. We all do. His sacrificial giving. 
And so here again is this grace theme coming again. I like to think in my sanctified imagination that if this were a film, that a score would have been written about grace. You know, when you watch a film and a character comes on the scene at different points in times and a musical score comes on in the background to let you know the king is here, the hero is here, the villain is here. Well, the, the theme music now is the grace theme music. Grace is back again. Because once again, Paul is pointing to the gospel. You see, they know the grace of Jesus Christ because the gospel had been preached to them. That's the only way they would know. He's grounding his principles of generosity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He's going to remind us who Jesus is and what he has done. In this little verse, Paul is packing a great deal of theology. There are a good half dozen to a dozen catechism questions that can get their answer from this verse about who Jesus is and about his work. And when Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he uses a word for know that means you experience it. You have found it out. You understand it. You don't just know it cognitively. You know it in your very soul. You've experienced this grace. That's how you know it, he says. And he says, what you know is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, think about the theology here. Who is Jesus? He is Lord. He is the one who is sovereign over all. He is the creator of all things. He is the one who is in complete control of all circumstances. He is also Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And He is our Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus that unites us to each other. He is the reason that all of this is possible. And the grace of Jesus Christ is that though He was rich. Now, if you want a passage that proves who Jesus is, this is it. Paul is assuming and relying on the doctrine of the God-man. Jesus is rich. He is the Lord of glory, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2. He is God himself who purchased the church with his own blood, we read in Acts chapter 20. He has all deity in himself. And the language here is, is very interesting. There is a verb to be here. It's not that he was rich in the past. And that's over. Now we might even translate this, while being rich, he became poor. He never ceased to be rich. He was always rich. And yet he became poor. Now, what does this mean? That means he put aside all the adornments of heaven. He left the side of the Father. He left the ceaseless praise of angels. He left his position of authority and perfection. 
And he came to a sin-cursed world. Why? Yet, for your sake, he became poor. Now, this grammar is interesting and helpful. The verb tense here is what we call an ingressive tense. Now, what that means is the tense breaks into the narrative. So, while he was rich, his poverty broke in. He took upon himself poverty. He added it to him. Never think that when Jesus Christ became man, he became less and subtracted. No, he became more, he added. He added humanity to his deity. And so, while he laid aside all the adornments of heaven, he became the baby in the manger. He grew and learned. He learned to walk. He learned his ABCs in Hebrew. He learned how to dress himself and how to eat to feed himself. He learned how to hold implements, tools, saws, hammers in his father's shop. He learned how to study the scriptures and memorize them. He learned how to minister to others. As he ministered, he had no place, he tells us, to lay his head. He had no home that was his own. We read over and over again in the Gospels of how he stayed with people like Martha and Mary and others. And that's because he had no place of his own. He forsook that for you. He forsook the comfortable life for you. But more than that, he suffered on the road to Calvary. His back was laid bare and the whips tore hunks of flesh off from it. A crown of thorns was pressed into his forehead. And blood and sweat and spit mingled down into his eyes so he couldn't see. He carried a wooden crossbeam so heavy that he kept falling under it and they had to give it to someone else to carry. And then on Calvary, they hoisted him up on that cross. They nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. They stuck a spear in his side. And the Lord of life died. Why? Who can understand this? Paul does. For your sake, he became poor. But it's not just that Jesus did something that we can acknowledge and emulate. That Jesus became poor so we can be okay if we're poor. No, that's not what Paul's saying. There was a purpose in Jesus becoming poor. You see this here in verse 9. So that. This is one of the greatest so that purpose clauses in all of the Bible. For your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He gave up what was rightfully his to enjoy. So that you, yes, you, Paul's being very emphatic here. He puts it at the beginning of the sentence. He actually inserts an extra pronoun. You, you might become rich. He did this not just to meet some of our needs. After all, that's what Paul was taking up the collection for. They weren't taking up the collection to put the Jerusalem church in the penthouse. 
or to buy them a, a Mediterranean vacation. No, they were just trying to bring them out of desperation. They were just trying to make them equal so that they could live. But Jesus sacrificed so that we would be rich, that we would abound, that we would be rich as He is rich, that we would be like Him. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he even said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus became poor so that you could be righteous, so that you could be sanctified, holy, so that you could be redeemed. Do you see how Paul describes his Jesus? My Jesus. Your Jesus. If you do not know this Jesus, then you are poor indeed. No matter how much monetary wealth you have accumulated, no matter how many family members surround you, no matter how much praise is heaped upon you, you are ultimately poor without Jesus. You are poor because true riches are only found in Jesus Christ. But the good news of the gospel is that you can be rich. You can have every blessing because Jesus brought those blessings down with him. He took on poverty that you might be rich. Will you come to him now? Will you believe in Jesus and his sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins? While there is breath in your chest and your heart beats, it is not too late. If you are afraid because you have not truly believed and others around you think you have, it is not too late. You can come to Jesus. And also, it's not too early. Young people, you can come to Jesus now. Right now. You are here listening to me this morning for a reason. God is having you hear His Word for a reason. You are here to hear the Gospel so that you might know Jesus. Jesus Christ became poor, that you might become rich. Answer that call in your heart now. Tell your family that you've heard that call. And to all who have answered the call, know that Jesus calls you to follow him. He calls you to constantly measure your generosity by his example. He has made that possible by his finished work. Because of the grace of Jesus Christ, we can live out the principles of generosity that Paul has given to us today. First, we ought to desire an overflowing measure of the grace of generosity. Second, we ought to test the reality of our love by comparing it to the sacrificial love shown in the earnestness of others. And finally, 
we ought to measure our commitment to generosity by the ultimate example of sacrificial giving in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are principles to live by. Not next year. Not next week. But today. Jesus Christ became poor. That you might be rich. Let's pray.